Good morning again. If you'll uh, turn with your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 16 through 21, the account of Jesus walking on the water. And as we get ready to read our text, I just want to highlight something for you. Um, just to help better understand the passage, right? So one of the things John has told us uh, is that the, the feeding of the 5,000 and, and this event on the water, it takes place during the time of Passover. And so what he's expecting the reader to do, is expecting us to do, is just download all of the Exodus events into our, into our brain as we look at who Jesus is. And, and if you start to think about the order of the Passover events, right, you have God rescuing them from, from Egypt through the blood of the Lamb, and then God feeds them in Exodus 16 in the wilderness, gives them bread, and then he leads them and guides them across the Red Sea, and so you, this is where the water comes in this morning, and then afterwards, uh, there's more grumbling in the wilderness about bread, and so that's the rest of chapter 6, is uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and, and we're going to see next time that people were offended and scandalized by him. By his claims. So as we get as we look at this story of Jesus walking on the water, being sandwiched by feeding of the five thousand, and then more grumbling, right? It's just another way John is showing us that Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. And so let's have that rattling around in our brains as we as we see Jesus this morning. Listen to God's word. Now when evening came. His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And this is God's word. Uh, he, he has spoken to us today in love. Let's, let's pray. Now, Father, we, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you that we have your past acts of love to remind us. Um, well, as, as John Newton wrote, forbids us to think that you will leave us to sink when we are swallowed up by the storms of life. And so I pray that this morning, as we better understand who Jesus is, our faith would grow, uh, our trust in him, even when we don't understand what is going on, uh, would, we would rest securely on his promises. So Holy Spirit, be at work, softening our hearts and opening our eyes to see the glories of the one who came to save us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So when, we, when my family and I lived in Mississippi, uh, where I went to seminary, uh, we survived a storm that made national news. Uh, it was, was kind of wild. I was, at that time, I was working for the maintenance crew, and so I was outside a lot, uh, sweating. And so I was out by this massive maintenance shed, and I was watching the storm clouds roll in, and being from upstate New York, I don't think about, like to think about tornadoes, right? Like Twister was a terrifying childhood movie. <sighs> And so, 
during tornado season as the storm clouds roll in, and of course it gets even more eerie as the sky turns green. And I'm told that that's a sure sign that a tornado is coming. And, and then I heard what sounded like a train on its way, like just really loud. And so I'm looking around, fully expecting to have to book it, looking for this funnel cloud. And instead of a tornado, it turned into a massive hailstorm. And so hail started dropping. They were golf ball size. They were baseball size. The biggest ones were four inches across, softball sized, um, which is not good for anyone's cars. Um, I know at least one person in Clinton, Mississippi, got knocked out trying to book it back into a building, got caught on camera, uh, which is unfortunate for them. Um, but I just remember being struck by just the sheer power of, of the storm. And it's just one of those experiences, like many, and if you've, and just remember what it's like to be a kid and just hear a thunderstorm and how traumatic that can be, and how small and weak you feel when the wind blows, uh, that you don't have, I, you're in a situation where you do not have control, and, and it's the power of the storm that makes our text so surprising, because the way the, the apostles tell the story about Jesus walking on the water uh, and healing or um, calming the storms, right? In our text, the first time that the, the fear of the disciples is mentioned, it's not because of the wind, it's because they see Jesus. Right? They're not afraid, at least the way John tells the story, until Jesus draws near as he's walking on the water. And so as we get started and, and to meditate on this passage, you know what, what makes you more anxious? Right? The, the, the storms of life that God leads you through uh, or, or the person who promises to be with you in that storm? Right? In, in the Hebrew imagination, the, the, the sea is a terrifying place. Right? Not only is it unpredictable, um, but if you read Daniel 7, the sea is also one of those places where the, the beasts rise up and they wreak havoc on human life. Uh, they cause wars. It, it's just a, a symbolic image for the powers of chaos, disorder, and death. And yet, here in our text, the disciples are more worried about Jesus, who has powers, who has power over the storm. So who are you afraid of? And I know, I know my heart, I know we're all human in this room, right? When, when we're led through the storms of life, anxiety spikes because we're at the mercy of our circumstances, stuff happens that we wish that God did not lead us through and and know what it's like to paddle and paddle and feel like you're not making any progress. And it's like the storm will never end. And, and that's what causes this anxiety. And yet, the text wants us to see Jesus, the Lord of the storm. To give us a whole new different way, a whole new way of seeing life through the lens of knowing who is in the boat with you. And so... He said, to quote John Newton, his journey of faith, right, the author of Amazing Grace, it began with an experience of God uh, in a shipwreck. He was at sea just praying, God save me. Right? And so when he writes, be gone on belief, um, the Savior draws near with Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. He's, he's writing from experience. And we need to know who is with us. And so 
let's look at this text through that lens. What does John want us to see in Jesus that gives us the faith to trust him uh, when God leads us through these storms? And the, and the first point that we're, we're called to see is, is to trust Jesus' independence, or the, the technical word would be trust Jesus' um, aseity, his being. Um, so as we mentioned, right, the disciples weren't afraid till they saw their friend, their, their, their master coming, and I'm sure they weren't thrilled about having to row in the dark, right? That would be a haunting experience in and of itself, but they don't panic until there's someone walking on the water uh, near them because they see someone who clearly has supernatural power. Jesus is just exploding their categories, right? And which, by the way, if you start to think about this, this should be the ordinary human way that we interact with a holy God. Right? And I'm trying to wrestle and trying to think back um, in all my years of ministry and just being a Christian, I don't think I've had a non-Christian tell me that their spiritual experience and their understanding of God led to anxiety and fear. Uh, the, the, the spiritual experiences our neighbors tend to talk about is, is some kind of warm, comforting experience with a loving God, not a confrontation with the Lord who has power over nature, right? not, not a holy, transcendent being who's able to demonstrate power over wind and waves, someone that makes you feel small, weak, even as you're comforted by that being, as we're going to see. <laughs> Right? So when the disciples are frightened of Jesus, and Jesus speaks, and he says, it is I, don't be afraid. And that's the message this morning as you see Jesus, don't be afraid. Um, and what Jesus is doing for them is, on the one hand, he's saying, yeah, it's me. You should know me. Hear my voice. Trust me. But he's also using a loaded phrase in Greek, uh, the phrase, I am. When it says, it is I, it's a Greek phrase, ego emi, uh, which means translated, I am. And you see that all the way th through the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the door. Uh, he's, he's identifying himself as the I am of Exodus, of how the Lord of the Old Testament um, introduced himself to Moses through the burning bush. All right, so if you flash back right, your, your Bible memory back to the burning bush, remember Moses is um, out in the wilderness, he's, he's a shepherd, he's minding his own business, and he comes across this bush, it's on fire, but not burning up. So he turns around to check it out, and hears God call him by name, Moses, Moses. Right? And of course, Moses responds with, God, you love me, you really love me. <laughs> Which he doesn't at all. He falls on his face, completely terrified. It says he's afraid to look at God. Right? And then God gives him his name, because Moses is saying, okay, you're calling me to go to Egypt to confront the powers of evil, uh, to, to let your people go. What am, what am I supposed to tell the people of Israel who sent me? And, and God says, and this is the first time we get his covenant name, I am who I am, which we know is his name is Yahweh, right? which if you're reading your English Bibles, it is the, the name Lord in all capital letters. Whenever you see Lord in all capital letters, it's, it's his covenant personal name. And so, God, who are you? 
I am. When you go to rescue my people from slavery in Egypt, tell them I am sent you. And that's what Jesus says as he's standing on the water. Don't be afraid. I am. Now, what does that mean? Right? And it'd be really, this is going to set, we're going to do some philosophy slash theology here for a moment. And it, it can sound a little bit abstract, but, but it's deeply practical because it's a question of who are you going to trust in this world that goes not well. Right? In the storm, you need to know who God is. That's what theology is for. And so part of what it means for Jesus to be I am for God to be I am, it's, it's, it's saying that I have always existed. Right? God has always been. Um, there, there, is no, there is no I was about God. He has just always been. He is infinite. He is eternal. Um, that's why the, the scriptures will say God is, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have that expectation that the, the Lord of Moses and the burning bush is the same Lord who walks on the water because he is I am. Right. And then the, the, the next thing we, we see about this is to be I am, to be a being that has always existed on his own, it means he's not dependent on anything or anyone. Uh, he is, this, is, this is the doctrine of his aseity. He is self-sufficient in himself. Right. I know this is abstract, but it means God needs nothing from us. He is completely content, satisfied in his own being by himself as the triune God. And you get a glimpse of that in the burning bush. That's the point of the story is, right, the fire is there, but it's, it doesn't need the bush to feed the fire, right? If we're going to light a fire, you need some kind of fuel. The bush doesn't need fuel for the fire because it's just filled by God's presence. Right? God is self-sufficient. Uh, he doesn't need us. We need him. And so the way, the way you can think about this, Psalm 36, for example, will say God is the fountain of all life. Right? That all of life flows from the one who just gives. He is life in and of in himself. And life overflows by his decision uh, to all of humanity, to the, to the world. Right? But God doesn't need a fountain to drink from to exist. Right? Hermann Bavink, the, the German theologian, describes this character of the Lord like this. He says, God is exclusively from himself, not in the sense that he's self-caused, but being from eternity to eternity, that's who he is. God is being, not becoming. God is absolute being, the fullness of being, and therefore also eternally and absolutely independent in his existence, in his perfections, in all his works, the first and the last, the sole cause and final goal of all things. In this aseity of God, or his self-sufficiency, conceived not only as having been from himself, but also as the fullness of being. And so he's... He's waxing eloquent about the fact that God just doesn't need us because he's God. He doesn't need creation. He had, there is no cause to God. He just is. 
And so when Moses and the disciples get a glimpse of this God who is wholly other, who is completely self-sufficient, who, you know, he's above the fire and above the storm, they're, they're terrified. Because when have you ever run into a being like that? Everybody here has a cause, right? You, no one in this room is self-sufficient or exists on their own, no matter how hard you try, <laughs> Right? Now, to see the Lord as he is, to see the I am, to see Jesus as Yahweh, is to have an experience where you both want him in the boat with you because he's Lord of the storm, but also being afraid of him drawing too near. That's the experience the disciples are having. Right? So simultaneously, we need the, the great I am to carry us through the storm but at the same time, you're bringing someone into the boat that you cannot manipulate, you cannot control. Right? So you can start to feel a little bit of what the disciples are seeing and experiencing. Now they're, they're seeing Psalm 29 lived out before them. In Psalm 29, right, the Lord speaks and the cedars break and explode. It's like a the, the psalmist is watching lightning just explode trees, strip the trees bare as the wind flies through, and then it leaves you with a portrait of Yahweh, right? Who's enthroned over the flood, enthroned over the storm. That's what the disciples see in, in Jesus. Right? It'd be a lot easier to have a God who loves us, who fills our stomachs, who hears our prayers and says, yes, I will make your life more comfortable and more manageable. Uh, a God that we can manipulate with our good works. If we pray things in the correct way, right, everything will be well. You can't do that with the, the great I am, with the Lord of the storm. Um, and so the, the first lesson for our fear this morning is, is not what Jesus will do for you. It's who Jesus is what he's demonstrating to be, right? Because to get to shore, to get to safety, you have to see Jesus as the self-sufficient God, the great I am, the God who can't, you can't control, but who controls you, who holds your destiny in his hands. Yeah. You can add one more detail. In Mark and Matthew, when they tell the story about, um, about Jesus walking on the water and, and saving them from the storm, it's, it's not just the disciples passively getting in the boat and deciding to go to the other sea. In Matthew and Mark, it's Jesus making them, sending them in the boat into the storm to where he, as part of their discipleship process, he wants them to see who he is in their weakness. <laughs> to get to the point where your only option is to give Jesus control, to trust him, Right? That's what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. I am. Right? To trust that even the storms he is leading you through is to help you better understand who Jesus is. Right? So that's point one. Trust the aseity. Trust the independence of Jesus. See the one who doesn't need you but draws near because he loves his people. He loves his sheep. Now, 
what would cause the fear for you and I as you see Jesus uh, in this? I mean, the other part, the next thing we have to trust about Jesus is, get, is to trust his power, right? to see his power at work. So that's the obvious teaching, right? You see Jesus walking on water. It's like, okay, he's, he's all-powerful. He's doing things that we can't do. He's, he's, he's embodying things that the scriptures say only the Lord can do. Right? And, and really, and you think about the miracles that Jesus does, this is one of Jesus' loudest and most clear declarations that I am Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament. Only He's only telling his disciples. Right? Because right, you think about the last miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, which we, we heard was a crowd of like up to 20,000. That was a public revealing of his glory. This miracle is... Jesus personally revealing himself, like, the, like in the transfiguration, you put it that way, uh, to his disciples so they could see who he is. Right? Now, what does that mean? What, who is the Lord of the storm? And, and what, what are we supposed to have in our background? What, what do you think is running through the disciples' minds? And, and this is where Old Testament memory uh, helps, Right? Exodus 15, when God leads his people through the Red Sea, it's just a, a song celebrating that God's just able to blast the waters with his nostrils in order to defeat Israel's enemies. Uh, Psalm 77 says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid, and indeed the deep trembled. Uh, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So there's a portrait in the Old Testament of the Lord using the sea as his path. That's what William Cooper wrote in his famous hymn, God Moves in Mysterious uh, Mysterious Ways, that Jesus is the Lord who plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. So this is enlarging our view of the sovereignty of Jesus. We read Psalm 107 this morning. Right? The sailors who, who stagger like drunken men, who are at their wit's end, who thought they were great and successful because they have all this money, but it was meaningless against the storms, against the threat of death. And so they cry out for help, and the Lord has mercy and calms the sea. And then it says, that, Then they were glad that the waters were made quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. It sounds an awful lot like John 6. Jesus got in the boat, and they got to where they were going. Right. And so this is, this is a massive display of supernatural power. Right. Jesus has the ability to carry you through the storms because he is the Lord of the storm. Right. Another piece of the power, right? We mentioned already that the sea was a scary place for Hebrews. They were not, um, they were not a seafaring people. And the Bible Project right now is doing a podcast series on the, what they're calling the chaos dragon or the powers of evil. And, and, and they're just tracing the story of how evil infects the world, beginning with Adam and, and the serpent. So that's one conflict. And it culminates with the church facing the seven-headed dragon in Revelation. And one of the places these scary beasts come and, and, and just make human life miserable is the sea. Because the sea is where the, the sea monsters live. We don't think like that because we're modern people and, and we have submarines. 
But at the same time, there are, if you go down into the Marianas Trench, there are some creepy things down there, and we're still discovering what lives there. All right? and, and so this sea monster, this thing that lives in the sea, that's one of the places, uh, one of the things that describes Egypt. So Egypt is described poetically in the Psalms as uh, a sea monster to be slain and crushed. It's just get highlight the power of how scary the sea is. And so Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10, says, Lord, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab, which is another name for, for Egypt, like a carcass. Right? That God was able to take the powers of evil, the powers of Egypt, and just like a giant sea monster, chop off its head and just throw it on shore. Massive displays of power. And so when, when you're reading the Bible and, and you get to Revelation 21 and it says there's no, not going to be any sea in the new heavens and new earth, right? they're not saying there's going to be no more beaches in heaven. No, it's, it's, it's getting you to imagine what would it be like to live in a world where storms don't just suddenly rise up, where creatures don't come out of the sea and, and cause death. Right. There's no more chaotic powers of evil that ambush you. And so when you see Jesus planting his footsteps on the storm, treading on the water, he's, he's demonstrating all of what it means to be the I am, to have an unparalleled power over evil and chaos, able to defeat and protect you from death. And so that's... The massive amount of background behind it is I, don't be afraid. Because look at who he is as the Lord, the, the Lord of the storm. And that also highlights his power because what is Jesus after? It's not only able to calm the storm outside of us when life stinks and life is hard and we're facing death and suffering and misery, he's aiming at the human heart. And if you've ever tried to calm someone who's deathly afraid, saying, don't be afraid, it doesn't work. Right? Bob Hope has a whole skit about that, about pretending to be a counselor, and someone says, I'm terrified of being locked in a box. And he, the whole gag is he just says, well, I've got two words that'll change your life. Stop it. <laughs> but if you have the power to back it up, you'll listen to someone who says, don't be afraid. When they have the ability to protect you from death. And so the question this morning is, what are you afraid of right now? What's keeping you up at night? What's, what's ca causing the storms of anxiety to rage in your heart? Do you see Jesus walking on the water? Do you hear him say, it is I, do not be afraid? So that you can be glad, so to speak, and take him in the boat with us, not just you. Right. See, this is a portrait of the self-sufficient God who does whatever he pleases, yet at the same time, because he loves his disciples, he chooses not to pass them by, but to, to get, be with them in the storm and lead them to safety. That's the one who says, don't be afraid. Last point here. Trust Jesus 
who Jesus is, trust his power, and, and the application, of course, is to, to not be afraid. Right? When you're in the storm, and this is, this is what we all need, is to get our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and to see who's, who's with us, to see who's coming, to see the one who has the power to bring you to the shores of safety. And, and that is described in another way later in chapter 6. So if you look further down, uh, when Jesus says, I should have written down the verse, all whom the Father gives me will come to me. Let's see, where, where did I put it? No, I'll just read it and we'll find it. Uh, all whom the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. So let's, you got this small picture of, of the disciples trying to cross the sea, and they don't end up in a safe place until Jesus gets in the boat, and they somehow, no, nobody really knows, they just magically end up where they're going. But Jesus expands that promise to say, let, let's, let's use that as a portrait of the Christian life. How do you get to the shores of the new heaven and new earth through the storms that you're currently living through? You have to trust the power of the one who's holding on to you. Right? Jesus says, this is God's will. I'm going to lose no one so that you can live right here, right now, in the storm and be confident that you will see a world where the sea is no more. That eternal life, future resurrection is yours, and you cannot be lost. Right? You're not going to be swept away. He's going to bring you to your desired haven, to the shores of eternity. That, that's the promise of the gospel. That not only does he give you salvation, but he doesn't take it away. He's not going to treat you like Jonah. Right? You remember the story of Jonah? He's out in the storm in the sea, and he, he's being the rebellious prophet, and he figures out that God's sending the storm to get him, and Jonah is cast out of the boat into the sea. That will not happen to you if you come in faith to Jesus. You're not going to be cast out. Now, as Peter says, you're guarded by God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the, at the last time. And so when you're in the storm and you're seeing, I am, it's terrifying. When you see his power, you can't be manipulated. But then you hear that he is holding on to you. The lesson is there is no storm, there is no wind that can, that can pull you out of the Lord's loving hands and the great future that he has planned for you. That's the plan for his church. Right? If you put it another way, the, the very worst storm you're going to go through is to be swallowed up by the waters of death. At some point, no matter how hard we try, death is going to find us. And the way we immediately land at the shores of eternity, at the shores of heaven, is through faith in Jesus, because Jesus promises to lose no one, and all those who come to him will be raised up on the last day. How do you know? Well, because the Lord of the storm was swallowed up by the sea in death. Right? One of the ways Jesus describes himself is a prophet better than Jonah. 
He says, you guys want a sign? You want proof of who I am? The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And what did Jonah go through? He was thrown into the sea under the judgment of God, swallowed up by a beast in the water, and then he gets spat back out on shore on the third day. And Jesus says, that's what I came to do. Right, if you're looking at this text and you see Jesus treading on the, on the waves, planting his footsteps on the sea, it seems like he's invincible, he's, he's so strong, so unrelatable, here's, here's someone who's so far above me, and yet when Jesus dies at the end of John 19, he cries out, I thirst, quoting Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is a psalm crying out for help as you get swallowed up by death. Because Psalm 69 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, I'm in deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. That's Jesus too. So to guarantee that Jesus would not lose any of his loved ones, none of his disciples, to guarantee that you would immediately land on the shores of the new heaven and new earth to be a citizen in Emmanuel's land, Jesus has to be drowned in the waters of judgment, to be swallowed up by death, to then be raised on the third day to show you that not even the worst storm that life throws at you, not even death can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so, that's the one who says, don't be afraid. (laughs) It is I. Right now, you're going to face tribulation. You're going to go through rough seas. You're going to feel like you're paddling and paddling, and you're going to have years where it feels like you're not making any progress. That's, that's what it means to be the church. Right? You're just out at, at store, out at sea. Sometimes there's calm waters. Sometimes there's rough, stormy seas. But when you have, you're glad to have Jesus in the boat, he promises, I'm going to take you to shore. Right? And by faith, right now, because eternal life begins the moment you Except Christ, the new creation breaks in. You're already in Christ, part of this new creation. So that when you go through the storms, this is what, this is what now can happen. The Lord, the great I am, can use these storms to sharpen your vision, to sharpen your eyes, to see who is with you in the boat, to see who is with us. God can grow up our faith. I mean, if he can walk on the storms, or walk on the stormy seas, he can use those storms to cultivate faith in us, to teach us. It's an opportunity to trust the great I am. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, sometimes Jesus is going to get rid of storms and give you calm. Other times, he's not going to get rid of the storm. I'm going to raise the level of your maturity to meet that storm. I'm going to show you how to walk through it. I'm going to show you how to walk over it, but I'm not going to get rid of it. And Jesus does that sometimes. Sometimes you're calm and Jesus will bring fear in your life. And sometimes you're afraid and Jesus will bring calm in your life. But because he's the great I am, he knows what he's doing. Sometimes he just needs to wake you up to who you are, to show you who you are as one who belongs to Christ. So, this is Jesus, the Lord of the storm. He knows what you need. That's why he says, it is I. Don't be afraid. 
That way you can trust the one who is above the storm, who doesn't need us, but loves us. So this morning, be pastored by John Newton. Be gone on belief, my Savior is near. And for my relief, he will surely appear. His love in time past forgives me to think that he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the wonder of you, Lord, becoming human to be with us. And so I pray for us as a church that we would be a people who reflect that knowledge, that awareness, that not only would we honor you as the great I am, we would be in awe that the one who doesn't need us has chosen in love to be with us in the boat. So give us eyes to see and a heart willing to trust, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll sing our last song, It Is Well With My Soul. <laughs>